Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. This is another in our series of extra COVID-19 interviews. And as the other uh, extra interviews, the audio quality will not be up to our normal standards, uh, but the information will be uh, of the usual high quality. Uh, Today's guest is Jessica Flack, uh, resident faculty at the Santa Fe Institute. Uh, She's been on the show before, and she's an incredibly good thinker about complex systems, interactions between cause cause and effect, and lots of other interesting things. Uh, She has some interesting ideas about how the shock to the system uh, from COVID-19 may actually provide some opportunities uh, to move our world uh, to a better place. So with that, Jessica, tell us about your thinking. Well, I mean, I guess I just want to start, and Jim, I know you've thought about this too, this should be a fun discussion, but I I just wanted to start by making this point. I think we're at a kind of unique moment in history um, in the following sense. So never before, and it's 200,000 years that Homo sapiens have essentially walked the earth, has there been what I would call a collective, empirically informed global response of the magnitude that we're seeing with this COVID-19 crisis. So I don't think there's another example when we've seen basically all nations, or more or less all nations simultaneously face the same immediate threat. And what's so interesting about this is that the response has been one at one, you know, simultaneously chaotic and, and full of promise. Um, and that might sound inappropriate given you know, that, that this is uh, causing lots of hardship and is quite tragic for many people. But um, I, I think there are opportunities here that can be exploited to perhaps tip society into a better future. And I'll just say a few more things um, before letting you jump in. And that is, you know, I mean, from a, the low hanging fruit point of view, we're seeing innovation in our understanding of obviously of, of epidemiology and viral dynamics, and, and maybe even in the character of scientific collaboration. And, um, and we have the opportunity to, to better understand how massive environmental events influence the robustness and trajectory of couple systems like markets and economies. But there's also something much more um, profound potentially on the table. And that's that perturbations, I think, like this virus can potentially reveal new approaches or show the value of old approaches did as maybe out of reach or nonsensical given the status quo. And so like, as an, just an example, and we can get into many more um, you know, many more ideas. Um, uh, one example is, you know, I think we're developing um, an intuition that was kind of before academic for the costs and benefits of, say, democratic, bottom-up, American-style capitalism and, say, Chinese, top-down kind of capitalism. A- an intuition that we just didn't have before because we couldn't see the effects sort of in real time playing out. And, of course, that's very noisy and we have biases and it needs to be worked out empirically. But, um, but, we're, but we're seeing maybe for the first time how certain kinds of changes um, are driven, for example, by the institutions and social structures that we have in place much more clearly than, than in the past. 
Yeah, the way of framing I've been using for these discussions about uh, impact of COVID on the future uh, is in the form of trying to look at where will homeostasis uh, dominate and where will hysteresis dominate uh, for our audience. Homeostasis is a tendency for complex systems to return to their previous state after a shock. For instance, you get the get a cold, you know, you feel like shit for three days, 10 days later, you're just fine. Very little change has happened to you a little bit at the serological level, but nothing material. On the other hand, you put a bullet through your heart, the homeostasis doesn't work anymore, and that event totally dominates the future. Uh, and of course, that's an extreme example. Uh, there's lots of other uh, more modest examples. And so when we think about the complex uh, dynamical networks that are our society, everything from the economy to education to marriage to uh, friendship to uh, scientific work, uh, this is a big shock. Uh, you know, I, I liked your framing. This is the biggest coordinated action by the human race ever almost certain. I can't, it's got to be true. Uh, I would also certainly uh, the biggest quarantine by many order orders of magnitude. Yeah, by many orders of magnitude. It's also, I would argue, the biggest shock, at least to the West uh, since World War II, and that was pretty damn big shock. Uh, so, uh, and, and, and it had all kinds of downstream effects. So, uh, yeah, I think we will see some re attempts to return to the way things are, but there will also be things that will be more naturally knocked out of their current basin of attraction and into a new one. And uh, let's explore some of your ideas there. I think uh, those are some of the most important and most profound things that will come out of this. Yeah, so I want to sort of turn that on its head a little bit and ask this question. So we, in, when we think about what we want, um, how we want our society to be structured and what we want to optimize, assuming, you know, or satisfice, we often talk about the degree of inequality or, um, you know, fairness or whatever side of the spectrum you fall with respect to these issues, but we talk about specific outcomes that we would like to see. And one of the things I've been wondering about is if instead of building societies designed to maximize or minimize certain things like the degree of inequality, could we build a society that instead optimized or satisfies for robustness and evolvability? And what would it mean? How would we have to change things in order to be optimizing for those things as opposed to specific outcomes. And I'm not saying that we right now have the capacity to really um, optimize or even satisfy for inequality, uh, the level of inequality, right? I don't, I don't think that's something that we can very well control, but it's the kind of discussion that we as a, a society have all the time. And, in, and, I, and I'm saying, what if we switch focus, not, you know, away from specific outcomes and, to and towards tuning mechanisms that allow us to change how robust and evolvable we are given what's going on in, in the larger world, whether it's ecological or, or social. Yeah, that makes a huge amount of sense. And, you know, like a lot of people are starting to think that way. Because, uh, you know, one of the uh, things I've pointed out again and again is that this, uh, pan or a pandemic with the statistical attributes of this one were entirely predictable. If one understands the fact that pandemics are a fat-tailed phenomena and you plot some of the pandemics we've had over the last uh, 50 years, uh, one of this scale is... Uh, you know, it's just going to happen. And oh, by the way, this is not way out on the right tail. Uh, there will be pandemics a lot worse than this one. And uh, I think it highlights, in fact, it shows the amazing stupidity of uh, 
the hardcore game A money on money return world uh, that works for short term efficiency and essentially tends to uh, never invest except at gunpoint in robustness and resilience. Uh, you know, a tiny investment, a couple hundred million dollars in January by the United States government in ramping up masks and ventilator production, uh, uh, beginning the, uh, you know, the, some uh, at scale run up of testing, because uh, to, so we wouldn't have had that first run debacle of testing, et cetera. Tiny, tiny investment on the scale of things probably would have cut the economic costs of this by a couple of trillion dollars. Uh, and yet there is no signal within our uh, current social systems that allows that to happen. Right, but that's true. And I think, and I guess what we have to ask is like, what would it mean to build a society that could more fluidly respond? To these kinds of events and also be working when you know everything was running well so for example i mean just thinking off the top of my head i imagine that we would invest in technology like 3d printers or whatever the version you know 3d printer 2.0 that could produce infrastructure ventilators and so forth at scale when on demand essentially um, and and that way, you know, allow us to have a more and, and hopefully out of materials that are biodegradable, right? Because if we're going to produce materials that we only need during a crisis and and we have nowhere to store them, or you know, we want we don't want to um, cause problems. Um, so how could we, you know, what are the what are the points of entry into a system where you're optimizing for robustness and evolvability and not um, specific outcomes that are not like you say so heavily focused on efficiency. What are the things we would need to change to do that? Yep. And what kind of technology we want, would we want to be investing? What kinds of um, educational systems would we want to be investing? And maybe, for example, um, and this is, you know, everyone's talking about this now too, um, education that focuses on probabilistic thinking, right? As opposed to, you know, learning just standard statistics and calculus in high school. Yep. And, uh, you know, the other one, it's just amazing. Uh, the general public has no intuition on exponentials. It's just staggering to me. Uh, one of the things that we, we were talking about before the show was uh, the cognitive differences, how people have behaved under the information flowing out about COVID-19. And I've come to the conclusion that there's a huge line between those who have a good intuition about what an exponential is and those that don't. Uh, so that's another part of our educational toolkit. Uh, but I would go beyond just technology and hard preparedness. Uh, I would say that this has also highlighted a major flaw in our information processing. Uh, you know, there was early signal uh, that was available to intelligence services in the West uh, by mid to late December. Uh, at that point, especially knowing about the fat-tailed nature of pandemics, small bets should have been placed to get ready, tens of millions of dollars in the United States uh, context. In January, it should have been hundreds of millions of dollars. But the information, the signal did not get through the noise and did not get to sense makers and then decision takers and then action makers. And so I think we have to really think through and, and, and invest not just in stuff like 3D printers and flexible manufacturing, uh, but a more robust uh, form of, of signal capture, sense-making, decision-making, and then mobilization for action. Uh, that may be the thing that gives us the greatest ability to operate dynamically in an evolutionary context where we don't necessarily know what the next big threat's going to be. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is so one of the one of the points I like to make is that 
when we do have these heavy tail distributions, the, uh, the, they're sort of, they're different than normal distribution and, or they're the same as a normal distribution in the sense that there's a lot of things that are more or less similar to each other there in the bulk, but there are a few things out in the tail that are rare, but much more, much bigger than you would see in a normal distribution. Uh, but, and they're rare, but less rare than they would be in a normal distribution. That's important. And one of the things that we see, so they're, they're low probability, significant events. And one of the things that we see when those events um, occur is that there are second order events in the tail that are almost impossible to predict ahead of time because they, they require the first order tail events to have occurred and then their likelihood increases. And so these are not things that we can forecast really, but they're scenarios that we can prepare for and we can have strategies if we know we're entering into, uh, you know, if we're in a first order tail event, we know that certain kinds of behavioral shifts that make the second order tail events more likely, we know what they are. And so we can check our own behavior. So these are not things we can forecast, but we, we can set up scenarios or a, a, a scenario space and, and understand or develop a set of strategies for dealing in those scenarios. And I, I think we need to see a lot more of that. Absolutely. In fact, one of the ideas I'm going to propose, I'm going to do it here for the first time, I've been taking some notes to myself, I'm going to write a little essay on it, is the U.S. government should establish an executive department of wicked risks, uh, whose job it is to do just this kind of stuff, uh, who basically uh, do advanced scenario planning for the civil civilian sector, uh, who do probabilistic modeling, uh, who, uh, who war game, red team uh, responses to theoretical things. Like, for instance, uh, it would have been really nice if we could take it and you know, bribe them if necessary, you know, a medium-sized city, 100,000 people, and literally run a live drill. What happens if you have a pandemic of this statistical attribute? We would have found all kinds of things like, oh, shit, we don't have enough masks. We run out of ventilators, et cetera. And, you know, give this department of wicked risks you know, $5 billion a year to play with and, you know, hire in the most creative, most intelligent uh, uh, scenario thinkers that exist on the earth to staff it. Uh, I think that would be huge for our society. Yeah, that's, that's a great idea. And, and I think that, you know, one of my suspicions, of course, is that a lot of the problem in terms of responding we're having in this COVID-19 crisis is derived from our current administration. But I don't think this Department of WIC, certain things are not in place that, that have been in place before that maybe would have facilitated things. But, I, but we certainly have, as, haven't, as far as I know, ever had an analog of the Department of Wicked Risk in any administration before. Um, I think some companies have such things. And I was reading a nice article about a grocery store in Texas. It's a very big chain in Texas. I forget what it's called, something with an H. And it has essentially this and, it, and was prepared for this pandemic in terms of bolstering its global supply chain, um, storage and so forth, and, and, is, you know, and is managing very well. And that, that's just, I love that story because it's just this, you know, it's just, I guess, not a, not, a, not a huge company, but quite an effective one that did what our current administration, you know, didn't, didn't do at all. Yeah, but the other thing is, you know, yes, it's we can blame part of it on our administration in the in the United States, uh, which anyone who listens to the show knows I'm no great fan of. But we should also note that these systematic failures of timely action uh, were pervasive across the West. Uh, you know, Spain, Italy, UK, France. Uh, none of them did a good job of being ahead of the curve. The only people who had did a or did a good job of being ahead of the curve tended to be either very small countries uh, like Denmark 
or uh, countries who had had a, uh, a pre pre-run drill on the SARS epidemic. So the Eastern Rim, uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan, to a greater or lesser degree, seem to have done well. So yes, we have our special issues, shall we say, with our current administration, uh, but the West as a whole failed the test. Yeah, I think in the United States that's complicated because I, I see one of the great things about the U.S. is this sort of bottom-up innovation. Uh, and so everyone I know, you know, from CEOs to scientists is somehow involving themselves in trying to contribute to COVID-19. And, you know, it's chaotic. It's a chaotic, semi-coordinated response, but it generates a lot of novel solutions and local solutions. And maybe not, you know, in, in, in this particular pandemic because of the, the timescales, you know, it's not fast enough. Um, but I think in the, we're going to have to wait to see whether to sort of partition, partition out these various contributors to, um, to where we're at today and, and see how it plays out down the road and whether maybe over the longer term, this kind of more, you know, semi-coordinated bottom-up innovation-based strategy that the U.S. has is useful. And I just want to come back to its related point, come back to the earlier conversation about building societies and social structures that optimize or satisfy robustness and evolvability as opposed to focus on focusing on getting specific outcomes like a degree of inequality. Um, it's not just about, you know, to have a department of wicked risk would be awesome and to get people thinking probabilistically and to think in terms of scenarios, which is a little different, would also be awesome. But uh, I think it's, there's a much more, um, there's a profound point, philosophically profound point hidden in there. And that is to really build a society that optimizes for those things rather than for inequality. We have to be com comfortable with an open, open-ended outcomes because we're not fo focusing on um, specific outcomes like inequality. We're, we're sort of, we're, by focusing on robustness, we're saying we're going to let emerge the right solution and social structure to combat this situation. That is not a typically, even though we're, we love innovation here in the States and we're very bottom up, that, that idea is not a typical um, idea that I think Americans are comfortable with. I mean, that's classic complexity thinking, right? And the number of mature yeah. people in power uh, who are capable of thinking in terms of complex systems uh, are tiny, tiny, tiny. They're not zero, but they're very small. And uh, you know, to get that kind of response, we'll, we need to do a better job of selecting leaders and make sure that they're up to, to snuff to do complexity-based thinking. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we, but we also need to sort of... Um, come to terms or, or get comfortable with the idea that for, if we were to build up this more fluid system, and you know, there's all sorts of, we can have a very long conversation, very speculative one about how, and I will put some mechanisms on the table in a little while. But um, if we were to build this more fluid system, we'd have to be comfortable with the possibility that for perhaps a short time period, we might move into a regime that's a little bit more top down. Um, we might put in place checks so that sort of top down, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a top down you know, philosophically oriented person, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to be objective here. If we, if we optimize for robustness and evolvability, we have to perhaps accept that we're sometimes going to enter regimes that are maybe the best regime given the environmental challenge we face, but maybe not the most optimal regime given our sort of underlying, you know, our ideas about how we should live as individuals and, and what society should, you know, what form it should take. Yeah, we've been talking about this. I've got some friends of mine and I. Uh, and what we think is that this, the kind of meta strategy is that 
the system, whatever it is, this complex uh, view system for uh, a, a new social operating system for our society to be able to deal with recurrent uh, wicked risks, has to be capable of doing phase changes. Exactly. Uh, so it can be in a state that we say honors all of our deepest values, but has to be able on demand to switch uh, into a new state, literally a new way of operating, uh, call it a war fighting mode, uh, which may not be entirely honoring all of our you know, longer term values. But here's the key. There also has to be a, a, a reason and a means by which that times out or which it returns to its normal mode uh, relatively quickly uh, once the risk is gone. You know, the Roman Republic had an interesting uh, approach to this problem uh, and they survived for what 700 years uh, which was that they had a qu extraordinarily complicated uh, quasi-democracy, quasi-oligarchy with all kinds of different veto points in the system. However, uh, by a, I think that is some supermajority of the Senate and not vetoed by the tribunes, uh, the, the governance mechanism could appoint a dictator. That's literally what they were called, a dictator. Uh, the term lasted only exactly uh, six, six months. And at the end of that term, the dictator was uh, thrown out of office. Uh, and that's how they uh, did the phase change. Obviously, we could do something more intelligent. But I think that's kind of the idea you were talking about there, right? Yeah. And, and in nature, you know, we see sort of two different types of of phase changes or um, transitions. It's, I mean, in physics, the concept is called a critical point where there are small perturbation or small shock to the system because of long range correlations can have big effects and kick you into a new state. And sometimes we see a repertoire of states. So like the canonical example is the fish school or the fish swimming together. And they're swimming together initially in, in a kind of in a shoal where they're loosely aligned and foraging. And then a predator appears one of the fish detects the predator and this information spreads across the group. And because they're, they're sitting close to the tipping point by, by shoaling, by having this sort of like low level of, of alignment, they're able to transition quickly into the schooling state where they're all highly aligned and escape the predator. And it's a reversible state change. They can go back to shoaling. So there the fish have these two, these two phases, essentially. They have the schooling and the shoaling. And there's a mechanism that allows them to move between the schooling and the shoaling, depending on the detection of the predator. And of course, this is a little bit dangerous because if the fish who initially detects the predator or thinks there's a predator present has gotten it wrong, they might switch the schooling inappropriately. So that's the kind of um, robustness cost of sitting near the critical point. But on the other hand, it allows them to enter a more adaptive state if the fish really is present, right? So. That's one where we have, that's one example where we have these two sort of known states at the aggregate level, each of which is adapted to a different environment, the presence or absence of the fish. But in other cases, it might be that you sit near the critical point and you're, you know, you, you're, you're, and you keep your interactions and your style, your strategies are well tuned to the current environment, but then the environment changes and it's uncertain or it changes to a distribution that you haven't observed before. And now you um, enter a, a state where that you're that you haven't been in before you or you enter a kind of um, search space and you don't know what you're going to get what you get though you know that what you had before is inappropriate though that's the key yeah we talk we use in our game b uh, world uh, the word liminal to mean that where you enter a space where you know it ain't what it was but you're not sure what it is yet uh and you know, that is a most interesting space. And I think uh, for the things you're talking about is a, probably a good way to think about the problem. You know, the, the, you know, the famous uh, 
formation switching by birds and by fish, uh, you know, they're quite simple. You know, a simple uh, way of relating, it's either A or B. And, you know, the rule for triggering A and B is quite simplistic. As humans, we can be way smarter. We can allow ourselves to be in a liminal space for a while, and we can figure out what's going on, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, those are the kinds of capabilities that we really need to bake into our social operating system. Well, I had another, you know, just, again, sort of playing with these ideas. When things are going well, actually, might be the time, if we could engineer these emergent systems, to, you know, to induce that state change to this more liminal phase. So we could explore at relatively low cost, sort of like roughly analogous to a neutral network in biology, explore at relatively low cost alternative solutions and ways of doing things, and then switch back to the one that we know works in the given environment. I mean, it's not really great to experiment when, when the environment is uncertain, with the exception being that if you know what you're doing before isn't gonna work in the current environment, then you have no choice. And I just wanna put on the table like a few mechanisms, and again, um, just these are just um, mechanisms that I've kind of like been I've been thinking a little bit about in my own head I haven't worked on them and I don't know if they would work but just as examples of, of how we might um, in, you know induce these state changes I'll take markets as my starting point yeah let's go for it I love to hear these okay so um, so one thing I was thinking about and I have two I think I have two examples one thing I was thinking about is so the market you know and I, and I don't know the history of this yet I'm, I'm working on it the market has these circuit breakers and the circuit breakers, I think they, you know, the circuit breakers stop trading essentially after there's been a drop of, of some magnitude for 15 minutes or something like that. And, um, and there's a lot of criticism of these circuit breakers. And I have to, one of the things I haven't determined yet, maybe, you know, Jim, I, I don't, is what the history on this is and how well studied this particular solution is, you know, theoretically in mathematical modeling and empirically, like is, where did this idea come from? It's an interesting idea, but it seems quite crude to me on the surface. And so one thing I was just playing around with, and again, this is just literally like no work on this. It's just something that's occurred to me because of um, the, the ability now to measure the emotional valence in the population via social media. So Computational Story Lab at UVM, I know you know those guys, Peter Dodds and, and crew, have this pedometer that they use to measure the sort of emotional valence of, of, of people using Twitter. And sadly, I think they detected recently the, the longest concerted sad period in their 12 years of monitoring this. Um, but one of the things I was, one of the ideas I was kind of playing around with the other day is what if you tethered or you made your, your market, tethered the sort of market management strategy to something like the hedometer so that when, you know, the, the, the emotional, because one of the things that supposedly drives big drops in markets and, and maybe and bubbles in the other direction is is the emotional states of traders in the community. Animal so, spirits, as John Maynard Keynes called it. Yeah, animal spirits, right? You get this, these these herd effects, herding effects, and contagions. And I, I think all of that needs to be better studied. But let's say that that is correct and roughly, and and that um, you know these big drops are traders following the herd essentially and causing the very thing they fear through feedback. What if you tethered? The market to a hedometer so that when you you could implement maybe like shorter uh you could implement time windows on trading or control the number of of, of um sales or or whatever um given what the emotional valence was in the population of course you have to take into account delays and many things and you might let it sort of run freely when things are going well but when the hedometer sorts it starts to indicate that um you know 
things are getting a little boisterous or they're, or they're, you know, or they're, or they're, or fears taking over, you might, you know, turn that knob a little bit. Interesting idea. You just, you needs a huge amount of work and, you know, empirical and theoretical work, but you could sort of tether things like markets to semi-exogenous um, data sources like this. Uh, and another, I'll just put the other one on the table before, you know, uh, you tell me, you know, what you think these things are, if you have any ideas of your own, I'm sure you do, is, um, is the role of noise. And so often, you know, noise, I worry a lot about noise and randomness and how it impedes information processing in biology and, and, and affects, you know, um, our, the nature's ability to build uh, systems that are well-tuned to the environment. Because basically you see errors in information processing all over the place. And you can imagine one reason why that's the case is that the world is complex and Right, it's, it's hard to estimate regularities. So noise is often thought of as something that's problematic and needs to be overcome. And I think about it in those terms a lot, but noise is also useful. And as one example, there's a recent study in Nature Physics that I quite liked by this, by Vishu Gutal and his team. And they showed in fish again, that, um, so the fish, and this is in one particular species of fish, um, that these fish actually, when they're, um, when they're not, when they're sort of misaligned, the, the noise in the misalignment feeds back on itself, making them more, making bigger fluctuations in their swimming trajectories, and actually eventually tips them into an aligned state. So the fish are, you know, copying or taking into account what their neighbors are doing, but that is not what causes them to become aligned. What causes them to come, become aligned is this feedback in the noise amplifying itself. So noise is potentially a mechanism that could be added to markets or other phenomena, to help with tuning. And, you know, you just often don't think in those terms and that's, you know, kind of an out of the box. Um, so it's like not an interest rate, but, you know, adding randomness. So the, whoever controls the market would add some random trades. That would be a really crude first pass example. Yeah, uh, a piece of people to talk to about that would be uh, Doan Farmer and the other guys over at INET uh, at Oxford. Uh, but we were working when I was at SFI. A lot of my work was done with the uh, uh, automated trading stuff, and we actually actually specialized in the combination of human-like strategies with noise traders. And I could vary the ratios and see how the uh, systems uh, responded. And it was interesting. At some level, noise traders acted as food to strategic traders, which is a little right. scary. Uh, and it's interesting. Yeah, what, what would happen if the market goes crazy? I'm just going to war game this out because this idea is actually clever. Uh, so let's say the uh, uh, the Federal Reserve, just for lack of any other entity, uh, is looking at the markets and sees the markets appear to be overreacting for whatever reason, and they just start introducing a bunch of noise traders. You know, literally uh, exactly. uh, people who who buy and sell. And the algorithm is ridiculously easy to create a noise trader. Uh, uh, and then the noise trader will actually uh, provide food for uh, other traders and will tend to cause the market to stabilize. I believe that is true. Uh, it's, it's been 15 years since I did this work, but uh, Don and his folks might actually be able to uh, provide you with some at least modeling confirmation of that. But I like this. That's a very clever out of the box thinking. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a couple possibilities. I think this is not trivial at all. I mean, one is, well, there already are noise traders, right? Already in the market. And it's called uh, civilians. Frank. Civilians, yeah, the mom and pop traders. Yeah, mom and pop traders are actually actually they're worse than noise traders. All the in, in all the evidence shows that they are considerably worse than noise traders on average. 
Yeah, so it, I mean, so you have the drop, plus you have noise traders, you have disincentivizes the very smart active managers to start trading, right? Because they see the market's now becoming a little bit inefficient, but it's also disrupting the signal, right? The strong downward signal. Yep. So exactly. I don't know, I, mean, I think it's non-trivial. The other beautiful thing about noise trading is it's very inexpensive because you're not making any bets on the trade. You're just basically buying and selling on both sides. Mm -hmm. And so all you're doing is paying the spread. And in today's world of highly automated trading, the spread is tiny. So I could be making, you know, $100,000 bets uh, repeatedly for probably less than $100, right? So the actual cost to the Fed to introduce noise, and in fact, today being paid for putting a limit order on the book, particularly in turbulent times, the goddamn Fed might actually make money off of it. If I'm, I love this idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can get somebody to simulate it. Uh, they could just pour on the noise and dampen the signal. But, you know, coming back to our, sort of our initial um, discussion before we started recording about this uh, about having a principled strategy space or family of, of models uh, for thinking about the COVID-19 crisis you know in, in the in the market or economic portion this is what I would like to see some out-of-the-box mechanisms like in addition to the circuit breaker you know um, tying to the hedometer noise injecting noise you know I'd just like to see and maybe you know one thing to keep in mind is it could be shown in some cases that some of these Me are mechanistically distinct, but mathematically isomorphic. So that's another um, set of interesting questions. But I, yeah, I, but I, the, I, yeah, these are the kinds of things that our Department of Wicked, Wicked Risks ought to be working on. <laughs> exactly. And yet nobody's working on it, as we know, in our kind of bland, dumb, short-term thinking world. Uh, and that's what we got to change. There is this, um, I did hear a little bit about this um, new exchange called, is it called the Long-Term Exchange? The, do you know this? Yeah, so it's um, the long-term stock exchange. Um, stock exchange. What do they do? Long-term stock exchange. It looks new. It's on a mission to enable 21st century companies to thrive. Um, and I think it favors like direct listings over traditional IPOs. And I don't know what the, it doesn't have much information on this website, but apparently it's been approved as the newest stock exchange by the SEC. Cool. We'll have to look into it. Uh, again, innovation, good thing, right? Yeah. Smart innovation, at least, and take measured risks, but take risks. Yeah, a little bit, in a, a little bit of a move in the direction that we're talking about. But what would it take? I mean, what would it take? Because I do, I do think that there's, you know, quite a, a deep philosophical issue here to get people to be comfortable with op open-ended the possibility of, of open-ended systems that might change temporarily. And like you say, we need to build mechanisms to make sure these phase changes are reversible. Um, but temporarily into into um, into structures that maybe aren't our ideal, and uh, I think one thing we need to do also is is have like uh, mechanisms to support to make sure that the bottom never drops beyond a certain level. So maybe like these would the, these mechanisms, this more open-ended situation or optimizing for robustness and evolvability would require that that we have uh, uh, you know a, a standard for quality of life that must be met in this system, a minimum standard for quality of life. And something I don't want, like, you know, basic universal income falls into this, this space and, and the idea of a welfare society, but I, I want to get away from the notion that this would be a welfare society because I don't, what I'm talking about isn't, isn't that at all. But I do think we need to have, like, a, a, we need to maintain some minimum level, hopefully high, quality of life, and, and then the upper end would be open. So... In, that, in, in such a scenario, there could be huge inequality, 
But if everybody's, if the lower bound was high enough, perhaps that huge inequality would not matter so much. Yeah, I, yeah, I absolutely agree with you on the first part. I am much less sanguine that the huge inequality is actually useful. A certain amount of inequality is useful. Uh, my magic number is about a factor of 20 uh, from, uh, in fact, I would have a very, very, very aggressive tax routine such that uh, once you get to 20 times the minimum wage, you're taxed at about 90%. But anyway, that's a difference of opinion, uh, you know, uh, but I do think the first part would make the, uh, the ability, you know, if people knew that they personally were safe, that they were going to have an income, that they could have medical care, uh, they could afford uh, what they needed to take care of their, their kids, uh, people would be more well to allow more experimentation with some of the knobs, I think. Right. And just to reiterate again, I think what I'm, what I'm sort of proposing here is we're, we're optimizing, we're satisficing for robustness and evolvability. We're maintaining a lower bound that's hopefully reasonably high of quality of life, but we're leaving this, the upper bound open. And so that's why I push back a little bit on the inequality thing, because it's not that I think a large inequality is useful or not. It's that I want to allow all of these possibilities just maintain the lower bound, right? And so, I mean, obviously, it might, it might be the case that you could not maintain a high enough lower bound with very large inequality. That might be the case. I don't know. But the, the proposal is, instead of tuning for a particular outcome, you tune for robustness and evolvability, maintaining that lower bound. Good place to start. I think with that, we're going to wrap up. Uh, this has been, as I knew it was going to be, an amazing intellectual ride. Lots of new things to think about. Lots of things to research. Uh, and as usual, we'll have pointers to uh, these various references uh, on, the, on the episode page. So, so thank you, Jessica. It's been great. Thank you, Kim. Pleasure to be on the show. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.